Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello again, everybody, and uh, thanks for joining us for another Motorsport Magazine podcast. And this month's is a cracker. You will find out just who is here in a couple of moments. But let me tell you, first of all, about our latest subscription offer, because as you know, they're very important to us. You can save £29 when you subscribe today, and you'll get a free copy of Jenks and the Bod, the odd couple of motorsport. That's a DVD, and it's free if you take out a subscription now. That's Jenks and the Bod, the odd couple of motorsport. There have been a few of those. Uh, make the most of the print and digital editions, as well as the online archive, by going to our website. That's motorsportmagazine.com. Well worth a look, the archive. Every single article since 1924. Incredible. And uh, just before we move uh, on to our star guest today, let me tell you about Mark Hughes's Formula One petition that uh, was started in Motorsport magazine at the beginning of the year. Well, it's been signed by over 1,200 people so far. And uh, you may remember this was uh, a piece that Mark wrote in the magazine back in April, talking about uh, the need for change and a better future for Formula One racing. If you do agree with uh, Mark's thoughts in that piece and you think we do need change in the future for Formula One racing, then go again to our website, motorsportmagazine.com, and sign the petition, because the more people who sign it, the more likely something will happen. Anyway, um, and we should mention, <laughs> sorry, this is going on a bit, we should mention that um, our website editor, Ed Foster, is about to tackle the first ever circumnavigation of the northern tip of Scotland. And he will be doing this in a pedalo. He's going to start on August the 2nd, which is uh, coming up pretty quickly. He's been training like mad for six hours a day or something. Yeah, amazing. Um, anyway, he's doing this to raise money both for two charities. Uh, one is the uh, Parkinson's charity, and the other one is Cancer Research. It's a 500-mile trip, and so far they've raised £63,000. They're aiming for a quarter of a million, and uh, I, for one, really hope they get there. I, I put my little bit in last week, by the way. And he's asked me to say, <laughs> if you would like to sponsor him, the website address is www.the500milepedalo.com www.the500milepedalo.com. Good luck, Ed. 
Anyway, Ed, fantastic, fantastic thing to do, and the very best of luck from everybody. Okay, well, with us today is Pat Simmons, the Chief Technical Officer of the Williams Martini Formula One team. He really ought to be on a beach because it's holiday time in Formula One, but no, he's here at the motorsport headquarters, and thank you very much, Pat. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Good. Right. I'm going to start the ball rolling by asking, you're so nearly there with the car this year. Wh how, can you identify for us what it is that's not getting you alongside and past those Mercs? Well, there are, there are a few things, I think. You know, Formula One is so exacting. It's so relentless. You, every single detail has to be there. And... To win regularly, you have to have every one of those details at a, a higher state than your competitors. I think we've got a lot of very good things on the Williams. Uh, it, it is a great car, but it's still got a little bit to go, as have the team. You know, we, we've, we've got to get used to winning again. We've got to get used to uh, you know, those difficult calls uh, that come sometimes in the middle of a race. Um, but, you know, considering where we were last year, things are moving on well. And... Uh, you know, there's another championship in me, I hope. So do we. It's a truly fantastic improvement from the end of last year. It really is. I mean, can you just tell us about some of the reasons why you've managed, the team has managed to get where it is today from where it was last year? Well, I think one of the first things to say is that there was an awful lot of quality there at Grove. Um, a lot of very good people, great equipment, a really good wind tunnel, for example. Uh, a lot of people who sort of knew what they were doing and yet didn't quite bring it together. So, you know, the, the, the focus had been lost, I think. You know, we, we'd uh, ended up working in little silos without this, this focus on vehicle performance. You know, there was, there was focus on performance in a lot of areas uh, and good people providing that. But no one was really sort of knitting it together. Um, I was given quite a, a free reign when I came to Grove, which uh, I really appreciate. And Mike O'Driscoll and Claire Williams, you know, who really are, are, are setting the scene there now, are uh, not just ready for change, but, but you know, very encouraging for change. Um, so I didn't really need to bring in loads of, you know, people. There were a few key appointments where I felt we were a, a little bit weak. Um, but now we're starting to get people working together and a, a better communication, a, a more focused common goal and uh, a lot of emphasis on, on process, you know, so that we, we really look at everything we do. And yeah, it's paying off. Sure is. I should have mentioned that uh, Nigel Roback is here, our editor-in-chief. And uh, Nigel, I know that you're going to... Um, be celebrating the uh, return of Williams because we all we all love the team, don't we? Yeah, I mean, I, I, geez, I have been celebrating the return of Williams. I mean, I, I, I confess there there were several years when I began to think, well, is it ever really going to come back? Because I mean, so many people were convinced that well, that's it. You know, Williams' great days have uh, have gone, and there were sort of flashes like you know, I, I'm into this day. I remain bemused that Pastor Maldonado drove a perfect race <laughs> Barcelona in 2012 I mean I never uh, I remember I remember um, talking to Alonso about that and he said he said Domenicali was on the radio the whole time because because Fernando was saying well I'm you know I can't catch him 
and uh, and Domenicano was saying, "Don't worry, don't worry, it's Maldonado." <laughs> <laughs> Famous last words. Yeah. But you know, but I mean uh, that that day, I mean you know, I mean fair fair dues. I mean Maldonado was on the front row, um, and he that was the quickest car in, the, in that race. But it was when that didn't really then come to anything afterwards. Then you sort of thought, oh well, I thought that maybe was the beginning of the you know the resurrection, but perhaps it wasn't. So now it's. You know, face it. It's always Williams has always been everybody's favourite team in the in the press room. So of course everybody's thrilled. Simon Aaron is here too. Simon, um, you will have some questions for Pat, I know. Yeah, one of the things that's interested me this year, Pat, um, Valtteri Bottas has had a stellar reputation since he won the GP3 title, and we know that he was very highly regarded by Williams from the moment he started testing from. But it seems to me that in the last few races. We've really begun to see the kind of you know his potential sort of materialise. I mean, how, how how have you assessed this progress? Yeah, I, I think you're right. You know, uh, we have seen a, a lot more of that that uh, promise uh, actually realised recently. Um, but don't you think we often see that with 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 racing drivers? In fact, with sportsmen in general, because I, I think that so much of being a, a good sportsman is to do with self-esteem and, and self-belief. And time and time again, you know, we've seen drivers who uh, trundle along and then suddenly they win a race and then they can't stop winning races. Uh, and I'm sure it's because they, they get this fantastic self-belief. Now, with Valtteri, um, great guy. Uh, and when I first joined the team and saw him racing last year, I thought, yeah, you know, the guy has got the potential. I can see what they're talking about. But... It was his rookie year in a very, very difficult car, a car that was very inconsistent and a car that was hard to understand. And with a team leader who, well, actually you could use the same adjectives, I suppose. Um, but, you know, it was very difficult for Valtteri to, to move forward in, the, in those sort of situations. Uh, I think this year what we've done is we've given him a much more stable team, we've given him a much more stable car. And now we're starting to see what he can really do. Uh, he, he's a really nice guy. He's a good team player. He's a very fast driver. He's very good in those tricky conditions, you know, which I think differentiate the, the, the good from the mediocre. Um, and he's bloody intelligent with a good work ethic, you know. And, and those things, they always come together to, to produce a, you know, a driver that people will remember. That's high praise, Pat, because you've worked with the best. <laughs> I mean, absolutely the best. Yeah, uh, and Valtteri reminds me of them. You know, he, he really does. If you had the chance, tricky one, this, but <laughs> if Alonso became available... Well, uh, he probably is available. <laughs> yeah, I've got the highest regard for Fernando as a driver. He, he, he really is special. Um, but he needs everything around him. And uh, at Williams, you know, we, we, we've had a, a huge improvement, but we've still got a way to go. And uh, I'd like to carry on the way we are. Somebody um, asked me the other day to ask you, we're seeing the, the Mercedes-Benz works team winning the majority of the races, and you have a Mercedes engine. Are, are you confident that you can get on terms with them? And by, I mean, by which I mean, you know, have you got as good a kit as they have? Are you convinced that you have? 
Uh, basic answer is yes. Um, we we have a contract, and of course the rules are such that you know the hardware has to be the same in all the cars anyway. It's the homologated hardware with very very minor differences allowed from chassis to chassis. Um, our contract obviously allows them to be a step ahead, you know, and I think that's only natural. They're not going to wait until they've got enough bits and pieces and calibrations done to to run every car. Um, and I don't find that a big problem. Uh, I'm very, very happy with, uh, well, obviously the product. There's no doubt it's the, it's the best power unit on the grid. But also the way we're working with Mercedes. They're, they're a great bunch to work with. They, they really are. And they push hard and they push hard for us. You ever have nightmares about you could have gone into 2014 still with the Renault? Well... I guess we wouldn't have achieved what we have achieved. Um, yeah, there's no doubt about it, you know, particularly with what we would have lost in that, that early season testing and everything. But uh, I'd like to think that the, the sort of Williams revival is a little bit more than just the engine. You know, yeah. Last year we had the same engine as the world champions and we finished ninth. Um, now you know we're, we're regularly beating the other Mercedes cars, uh, the McLarens and the Force Indias. Um, so it's a, it's a bit of everything, but of course I'm happy with, with Mercedes. It really is a, it's a great partnership. I think one of the most impressive aspects of this season, before the start of the year, I had countless friends saying to me, oh, only three cars will finish in Australia, only four cars will finish in Australia. And I said, no, the, you're, you're dealing with some of the greatest intellectual firepower here. Yeah, by the time we get to Australia, those cars, to more or less a degree, will work. And the reliability generally with all the new technology, I think has been pretty good. I mean, how difficult has it been over the winter? Get it, well, I know there's been a three-year development programme with engines, but to make them as reliable as they have been? It's been massively difficult, not just over the winter. You know, even now, we're learning so much about these power units. There's so many different things. There's so many different aspects. Um, yeah, we're running them on the edge, and that's what you do in racing. Uh, I agree with you. It's been hugely impressive. Um, during the winter testing, I, I, I was really doubting what Australia would be like. And uh, in typical Formula One style, you know, at last minute, it all comes together. And, and you know, we, Red Bull pops up on the front yeah, row. And, it, it's yeah. amazing, isn't it? Because it seems to me, I mean, there are so many things wrong in the, in the sort of world of Formula One at the moment. And all the complaints and about the noise and all the rest but it seems to me the one thing there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with is the actual product itself i reckon i mean to me the racing's been better this year than it has been for a I, long, I, long I time i couldn't agree more nigel i mean it's uh, uh i think it just shows where we are in formula one that we've got a, a group of people talking about what can we do to improve the racing well actually that's not where our focus should be. The racing is pretty damn good, and I agree. This year, probably better than it's been in, in many years. There are lots of other things we need to look at. You know, people aren't watching us because we're not promoting our sport. Um, but the actual sport itself is really not bad at all. And it's not, it's not just that. I mean, I know Nigel mentioned the noise there, and there have been lots of complaints about it. And I can kind of understand that because... I mean, I attended, during the V8 era, I attended all but probably six Grand Prix. Nigel was at probably 60% of them or whatever. To us every fortnight, you know, that V8 noise was just part of our working life. And I can understand that to somebody coming in once a year or once every other year, 
that was you know that big shrill noise was part of the attraction but looking at the current cars on track just on their own they have fantastic presence just because i mean with all the talk and they're, they're lively they move around i just i think just to watch as a, you know all right they're not as noisy but i think it's just as a you know the spectacle i think is absolutely there yeah i, I agree i you know it is nice to have all that talk uh, and you know slightly harder tires we've got this year and everything you know the cars do move around and that is great yeah, the, the noise is quite an emotive thing. Um, I personally don't think they sound bad. Uh, yeah, you know, the, the V8s screamed, but, you know, crikey, when the V8s came along, everyone said, oh, you know, the V12s, remember those? <laughs> yeah, sure, well, you know, let's move on. I, th- I think they sound great, actually. I, th- I think they sound really grunty and powerful. I, I and, like the sound of them. And, you know, and I never liked the sound of the V8s because no. it was just an anonymous yeah. scream to yeah. me. They all yeah. sounded exactly well, the same. It's the fact that they all sounded the same, whereas yeah. 20 years, 30 years previously, you could actually tell oh, what was going yeah. past you because of the different... You could tell the a Ferrari from a matter of a from, an from, from, yeah, from a Cosmo. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Pat, coming back to the... Um, uh, getting away from the engine for a minute, um, can you tell us about some of the things that you've done since you arrived at Grove? to uh, you know with this car and what what you've brought to it because obviously you've you know your experience is is well decade decades of it particularly in 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 the aerodynamics and what sort of things did have you done to this car well what i haven't done is come along and said if you design the diffuser like this and the front wing end plate like that and use this suspension geometry everything will be great uh, because that's not the way i work um what I think I have done, particularly in the, the sort of aerodynamics field, is said, look, let's really study what we're doing. Let's think about how we're assessing things. Uh, let's be very self-critical. Let's make sure that we are moving forward. And uh, let's communicate. And I, I think that that has uh, helped a lot. When I arrived at, at Williams, there was a bit of an air of panic um the car wasn't very good and there there was definitely a feeling that providing we keep throwing parts at it sooner or later it will get better and uh, of course that that never really works so i I set myself some sort of ambitions one of which was obviously to put the best possible car on the grid in australia that we could achieve you know that that goes without saying doesn't it but what was more important to me was from that point onwards, we had to move forward. You know, we, we had to put bits on the car that worked. And, you know, that's actually a lot more difficult than you might think. And what I'm really pleased about this year, uh, amongst many, many things, but one of the things I'm very pleased about is that I think that everything we've put on the car bar one has been an improvement the one thing that wasn't was a deliberate attempt to really push the envelope and see how far we could go and from it we learnt and we analysed and reproduced something or produced something a little bit different what was that? that was a rear wing a rear wing that we tried early on in the year and um, I think the record probably shows that we're out developing you know teams that are bigger than us uh, hard to say because I think we underperformed a little bit at the beginning of the year as well, and it's not just in aerodynamics. You know, a, a, another thing I'm very proud of is in Bahrain, we did a three-stop race. Now I'm not proud of that because others were doing a two-stop race, but what I was proud of is that by the time we got to say Silverstone, Germany, we probably had better tyre use than any other team, and that you know that's an enormous step forward. Yeah. Um, th- there's been. Th- 
bits of criticism, haven't there, in the media, particularly, I guess, well, it would be, wouldn't it, about uh, the team's tactics? You know, it's been said that you could have done better had you done this and had you done that. How, how do you feel? What's your, your d reaction to that? I, I set very clear objectives. Uh, and the objectives that we set early in the year was to maximise the points we could get in the Constructors' Championship and to be uh, really quite risk-averse, much more risk-averse than I'm probably used to in, in my racing. But I felt it was what we needed as a team. Uh, we needed to give the team confidence. We needed to give our partners confidence. And I think we achieved that. And I think we did the right thing. Uh, I mean, a, a classic case where people mention that is Austria. You know, we, we were on the front row. Why didn't we race for the win? Well, we were on the front row because our competitors who should have been on the front row had for once made a mistake. And I'd always said, we've got to be in a position to capitalize on the mistake because it will happen one day. And okay, we did that, great, very nice. But, but look at the big picture and don't, don't look at the whole thing. And uh, I, I spoke with Rob Smedley and we said, no, look, we, what we're going to do is make sure we get the handful of points that we can really pick up in this race. Uh, and so we didn't go off and do a very aggressive race. And I think that was the correct thing to do because if you look at that race, and it, it is a good example, uh, somewhere around two thirds of the way through, I think it was, you know, Fernando was right on our tail. He was one second behind us. Now, if we'd gone aggressive and put ourselves in a position where at that point, two thirds of the way through the race, we'd actually been, say, five seconds further back for the sake of being aggressive at the beginning, and, and that is precisely what would have happened, he'd have been in front of us. We'd have lost those valuable points. So I think it's the right thing to do. However, if we can start consolidating our position, I can't wait to get back to, to racing aggressively. I mean, but I presume more points is more money, and more money is is good for next year's car. Exactly, it's big picture, isn't it? Can you just? Uh, I asked you before about Valtteri's progress. How's how do you reckon Felipe's got on this year? Because you know, within the paddock generally, he's not rated as an out-and-out -out top liner, despite two thousand and eight. But you know, he does keep putting in terrific performances from time to time and I think he's been very very solid this year I mean how have you assessed him yeah Felipe surprised me um when we were discussing uh drivers for for 2014 uh and Felipe's name came up he, he was obviously available uh, I thought yeah you know that is a really good fit for our team where it is and again uh, you know, I don't want to get tiresome with this this phrase big picture but we've got to look at where we're going and everything and I thought Felipe was a great fit for the team. I, I didn't know him particularly well. You know, obviously never worked with him, but actually he's one of those the drivers that I hadn't really spoken to very much. So over the winter we met a few times. Uh, and what did impress me was that I know Fernando pretty well. And I know that Felipe on his day can actually race Fernando. So I thought, well, yeah, he's quick, you know. Uh, when I met him, I found what a, what a great guy he was. You know, a, a real team player. And as we went through our testing and our, our first races, uh, that, that initial impression was just reinforced. Uh, Valtteri I have a lot of regard for, and here was Felipe really giving him a hard time, yeah, quicker than him very often. Um, really concentrating on the team, really good motivating the team, absolutely everything we wanted. Um, over the last sort of couple of months, yeah, there have been a few accidents that have been 
very troublesome for the team. You know, in we just come back from Hungary where um, Felipe had to run with a, a floor that was one spec back because uh, we'd simply run out. We just couldn't make enough parts to, to cover all the accidents. And that's been a, a bit of a blow for the team. But actually, you know, Felipe's, he really is, he, he's the perfect fit for where the team is at the moment. And he's a great role model for our other driver. So, you know, what more could we want? I have to say also, I think um, that little bit of avoidance he did at Silverstone on the first lap, Kimi Ozuma pinter too for that one. Yeah, I mean, that just, I thought he's just that could have been horrible. Absolutely, I thought, I thought, he, I thought he did a brilliant job oh, to get it out. It was of an it. extraordinary piece of driving, mm. yeah. wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. And it looks so simple and straightforward when yeah. you when you see in replays. But given the lack of time, the speed is doing and everything else. And yeah. The speed involved. Yeah. Oh yeah, no. When when I, when I say you know the accidents who have cost us, uh, you know that one. Wow. I don't know how he did it. I suspect he doesn't either. <laughs> yes, exactly. C- can we talk about the Frick suspension? Yeah. Particularly, I wanted to ask you about this because um, I hope I'm not wrong here, but you've been through the mass damper. Uh, also, at Re- Hockenheim. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 so you know about you know things being fantastically clever, and then suddenly they're not le- they're not wanted anymore. I'd, I'd, what's your view of 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 this mid-season sort of? Uh, well. I don't know, you can be cynical and say it is, it is sort of surprising how these things always come up before the summer break and, you know, so there's something to talk about. Well, it's but the actually, Michelin syndrome, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, Michelin, the tiered mass damper. But actually this one's been a bit of a damp squib, hasn't it? Um, you know, Charlie decided that the, he he didn't regard the systems as legal. Everyone said, oh, yeah, OK, well, let's take them off. And, you know, two weeks later, we've almost forgotten about it, haven't we? Um, but if that is the case, though, I don't quite I mean. What can you explain? What was it doing for the car that isn't that isn't being done for the car now? Basically, it, it was increasing the front ride height at, at high speed so that at low speed we could have it set lower. That that was what it was all about. Um, interestingly, uh, it, it was something that we developed at Renault, and I think we were the first to use it in winter two thousand and eight. Was I think the first time we tested it. Uh, and yeah, it, it, it it's grown in sophistication since then. On some of the cars, I mean, some of the cars actually run a, a very similar system to the the old uh, Renault system. And naturally, it gave an advantage. Uh, you wouldn't have it otherwise. But it was a, a limited advantage. Um, I think that with the with the current rules, you now the cars are not quite as height sensitive as they used to be. So that a little bit of that advantage was eroded um, and I don't think it's really changed the status quo much has it yeah. doesn't, look, yeah, doesn't in, appear to does it no in, no in Germany we were certainly a lot closer to Mercedes and I wondered then whether you know had their system been that much better than ours or something but then in Hungary you know things have turned around again yeah, the, the, the only confusing thing to me is really why, I mean, they've been around a while, why in the middle of a season they suddenly become a, a matter of debate? And Now, the, actually, that's a very, I think that's quite an interesting question because I used to sort of pride myself on being able to anticipate where the rules were going, how people were reacting. Um, it was probably a 
bit easier when, when Max was in charge because you knew that if he was hinting at something, it was going to happen and you could sort of read into it. Uh, and of course, in those days, um, working with Flavio, who was very close to Bernie, you could also get that side of the picture. These days, it's very, very hard to anticipate where things are going. And, and, and we've seen so many blind alleys this year, you know, from the strategy group, from Bernie, uh, not from the FIA, because they're not really saying much at the moment. But this was an interesting case where Charlie had been talking about it for a little while. Uh, we all sort of knew it was coming. Um, I spoke to him and he said, yeah, you know, I, I think it's the pragmatic thing to do is to allow it to run till the end of the year, rather like we did uh, with active suspension, which if you remember was banned in Canada, I think, in, in uh, uh, 92, with the, yes, with the, with the band come in in 93 or 93, with it to come in in 94 or whatever. Um, I th yeah, I thought that was quite a pragmatic solution. I thought most people would accept that. Um, if I had a personal preference, I would have been happier if it had happened immediately, but I wasn't going to rock the boat. And uh, Charlie felt that that would probably be the case, but I think he was a little bit worried that, that Red Bull might be the ones who would not accept that in the belief that Mercedes had a, a better system or whatever. Uh, but in the event, it was McLaren who were the first to sort of break ranks and say, no, we're, we're not going to, to run it. And, you know, I hadn't... Charlie hadn't seen that coming. I hadn't seen that coming. Uh, it really is so much more difficult to anticipate how the politics are playing out these days. There seems to be a deafening silence from the FIA. And there, there is at the moment. I, I, you know, I think we, we, we've all lived through, through many years of Max, who, uh, who, who uh, was the exact opposite. You know, he, he was the guy who was driving uh, the rule changes and, and I have to say you know most of them uh, to good effect uh, a lot of the, the good things particularly in the sort of cost saving and what have you a lot of them come from Max um, these days the FIA seem to be administering the championship rather than driving the championship and probably goes back a little bit to to what I was saying earlier, that where we're lacking at the moment is anyone really promoting Formula One. You know, there, there doesn't seem to be a champion of Formula One at the moment. No, I was just going to say, um, really, even more than that, Pat, I mean, many of its leading lights actually denigrating it. That's been the hardest thing for me to... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, this, is, this is what I referred to in um, an FIA press conference earlier this year as the sort of Gerald Ratner yeah. effect. Yes, yes. Well, yes. absolutely uh, right, yeah. yeah. You know, okay, UK but people know that, but Gerald Ratner was a guy yes. who uh, described his... He, he, he owned a jewellery chain and he described his uh, products as crap. Yes, and, that's right. And uh, at a shareholders <laughs> meeting, I think it was, and, and it led to the, the end of his company. Yeah. Actually, maybe some of the younger people in the UK won't remember that, but uh, <laughs> I just got that feeling that that's yeah. what we're doing at the moment. We've got a good product, but we keep running it down. But, you know, when you have Montezemlo sort of coming out with this stuff about it, he feels it's his duty to save Formula One. I, I mean, I, I don't really understand what he's talking about, unless it's getting rid of absurdities like double points and, you know, and that sort of thing. I think he's got a bigger duty to save but Ferrari. Well, you'd think, you'd think that would be the first thing, wouldn't you? Yes, yes. Yeah, well, actually, that's rather a good point, isn't it? Who should be promoting Formula One, you know, and, and, and who should be making the rules? And is it correct for the teams to be as involved as they are? You know, have they, have they got too much of a vested interest? You know, are the lunatics running the asylum? 
Well, yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at other sports, it isn't the case. I mean, take football, for example. It's not run by the teams, is it? It's not. And, and look how successful the, the Premier League is. You know, why, why can't we do that? Yeah, you know, you're right. It's all about promotion, isn't it? But I think what, what, what amazes me about it all is that the, the, you know, it's this wretched strategy group. Um, this double points gets blithely sort of waved through. And now, you know, Toto Wolff is saying, oh, it's terrible, we must get rid of it, because it could be a disaster if the championship finishes that way, if it comes into play at well, the last race. Well, might give it to Ricardo. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, but you know, what it makes me think is, have these people any clue about the fans of this sport and what, what they like or what they don't like? Because I haven't come across a single colleague, friend, acquaintance, whatever, who is other than recoiled at the thought of double points and, and what a sham it is. Yeah, well, again, you see, this is our, our, our sort of lack of professionalism of not doing our market research. You know, it, it, if you run a business, you've got to know what your customer wants, and, and we're not doing enough of that. Um, I think Photo did some work in that direction, uh, uh, but... Well, they did. I mean, in fact, that it, in many ways, I mean, we owe, that's, why we, that's where DRS came from, wasn't it? Because I think when Martin Whitmarsh was, was running that fans um, forum thing, there was this overwhelming um, desire to see more overtaking, and DRS came in on the back of, on the back of that. But, but wasn't it great in Budapest last Sunday to see overtake? I mean, there was lots of overtaking, and it's a challenging track. It's always difficult to overtake there, but it was having to be done strategically. Drivers actually having to work bloody hard. Yeah, to, yeah. To, 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 to find the space to, and it was and it was great to watch. And, and, and DRS didn't really mean think There's been a bit of a mindset change. I, I don't know why, but you know, everyone said, "Well, the cars can't overtake." It's all to do with aerodynamics. Of course, aerodynamics doesn't help you with overtaking. But you know, the GP2 guys never knew that, did they? Yeah, they had something to prove, so they overtook. And I think that mindset has now got into Formula One. Uh, you could enhance it, you know, if you had bigger separation in the points and things like that. More incentive. That, that's what it's about. You know, it's incentive. And uh, I think, you know, I know that the ins and outs of overtaking and the facts don't stack up. So I'm convinced that actually the... The, the driver mindset has changed. And actually, I am very, very pleased to see the FIA relaxing a little bit on, on driving rules. Because oh, I think we, we should yeah. do that. Absolutely. And I remember yeah. uh, getting an enormous bollocking from Max Mosley uh, several years ago for publicly stating that I thought the stewards had been wrong. I think they were penalising Hamilton in Spa or something. I can't even remember what it yeah. was. But, uh, but uh, I remember getting a big bollocking from, from Max for that one. But actually, I'm, I, I want to see people racing. Yeah, but I thought, I thought the kind of overtaking we've seen quite often this year, and certainly in Budapest last Sunday, was so much, you know, that when we, it became meaningless in Malaysia a couple of years ago, you, you got such a big toe in the DRS, coming to the DRS zone, you couldn't help but overtake. Even if you didn't want to, you were going to pass the yeah. car ahead. Yeah. It happened in Turkey once as well. Yeah. You know, there were just so many, and it just became yeah. meaningless. But, yeah, I mean, but last they, Sunday, they were actually having to scrap for it. It was great. They, they were, you know. We, we came up, uh, Valtteri came up behind Vettel in the last bit of the race. And, yeah, they were all over each other. Uh, and Vettel pushed him wide, pushed him off the track, actually, at turn, turn three, uh, turn two. And uh, we sort of looked at it and said, oh, well, we better tell Charlie. But we knew damn well that what he'd done was 
perfectly. Yeah, it was racing. It was great. Only Charlie been the other way said, around. Charlie, Charlie just said, oh, go away. Yeah, all right. <laughs> well, of course we will. But the thing, this is part of the problem, isn't it? That I think fans don't really know where the hell they are because they've got... And when we went through the whole, all the years of Senna and Schumacher when fundamentally a driver could get away with anything and it was never punished... And then it went to the other extreme, and now we're going back from that. But still, people are thinking, "Well, you know, what's?" But not yeah, just I mean the fans in in the teams. We're still not quite sure. No, the no, no. Well, well, I, I, but I, I'm I'm not complaining. No, I, no, I like no. to see it. I agree. It's definitely the right way to go. But I mean, for example, in uh, in Hockenheim, when Sutil spun on the last corner and finished up in the middle of the road. I mean, geez, what, did any of us think there would not be a safety car then? I I just assumed there would be. And more to the point, so did Mercedes, and that was why Lewis, you know, came in earlier than he otherwise uh, would have done for his last stop. So you, it's difficult to know what the mindset should be. I mean, for the last, I don't know, 10 years, a car finishes up in the middle of the road with a dead engine, you just automatically think, safety car. Yep. And it didn't happen. Yep. Um, Pat, can, can we um, ask you a little bit about uh, some of the other things that are going on? For example, the, the, the standing start instead of the... I mean, if that had happened in Hungary, I mean, half the track was wet and half the track was dry, so that, that wouldn't have worked, would it? What's your view on this? Uh, it, it can work, of course it can. Uh, it's a question of is it better than what we've got at the moment. Um, I'm pretty open on it. You know, a lot of these rules, what, what matters to me is that the rules are the same for everyone. I hate it if, you know, if someone's bringing in rules where they, they think they're advantaging someone. I'm not a great fan of it because I think it just adds a bit of a delay. Um, I, I'm, I'm an old guy, but I know that the younger people want sharp, punchy uh, events, whether it be a race or, or whatever. Uh, and the idea of even sitting around on the grid for 10 minutes, I don't think is terribly a, a appealing. So for that reason, you know, I, I'd like to see the races a bit shorter, a bit more action in them. And I particularly don't think that a, a standing start after the safety car adds to that. I think it, it goes the wrong way. But if it happens, it's not a big deal either. Well, I mean, for what it's worth, I see this morning, the reports from Germany yesterday, that Bernie is now saying, no, 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 it won't happen. Standing restarts. Okay. Um, well, we'll see. If the quote's right, you can reckon the sentiment will be right and it won't happen, but... But it we'll, doesn't mean we'll, that tomorrow we'll he can't change his mind. Well, again. no, no, absolutely. As not. always, no, no, Nigel no, no, is no, on no, the button quite, with quite, the latest quite. news, isn't he? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it's a scoop from Mr. Roebuck. No, 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 from no. From one of his see. German contacts. No, 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 no. Not a scoop at all. Just, just um, pleased me when I saw it. Can I ask something about downforce, Pat? Um, because we're we're seeing Vettel. We're not the, the Vettel we see this year is not the man we saw last year. Apparently, superficially, okay. Um, What's your view of the 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 lack of diffu the rear diffuser? Um, would it have made that much of a huge difference to a driving style, and would it be that difficult to adapt? Is that what we're seeing, or not? That's a lot of questions. Um, yeah, yes, I think that uh, it does make a, a huge difference, and I, I think it's quite interesting because I think when we had the first blown diffusers and and. Yeah, let's not forget Red Bull were way ahead of the rest of us on, on utilising that. When it first came along, I think actually Mark Webber got on top of the change in driving style quicker than Sebastian did. 
And I, uh, 2010, I guess it was, I, I, I was sort of watching around the track at Silverstone and noticed, you know, just how differently he was driving, different lines, getting on the power earlier by taking a different line, etc. I thought, yeah, he, he's, he's figured this out. But of course, then the, the, the blown diffusers moved on, so we were blowing them, you know, on the overrun, all this sort of stuff. And I think Sebastian actually then totally, totally just understood how to, how to drive the car. And it gave him an advantage that I think some, most of the others, if not all of the others, hadn't really got. Uh, and so, of course, yeah, a, a little bit of that um, has gone. But, you know, guys don't learn to drive overnight. They don't forget how to drive overnight. He's having a bad season. He's got a teammate who's giving him a hard time. But don't write him off. You know, he's a damn good driver and he's an intelligent guy and he, he'll, he'll come back. Certainly not writing him off. Anyway, thanks. We've had a record number of questions, by the way. Uh, we've had 13 pages of A4 of questions. So um, I'm going to ask some of them. This one comes from Frank Lamy. And he wants to know, Pat, um, would reducing the wheelbase and widening the car be a way of reducing downforce? He's obviously a fan of getting rid of some of the downforce. Um, no, it wouldn't, uh, unfortunately. The, the wheelbase doesn't have a, a huge effect. Uh, reducing it... Yeah, the front wheel wake is a very important part of the aerodynamics, all the dirty air coming off the front wheels, and, and you do want to keep that away from the rear of the car. So I, I suppose a reduction in, in wheelbase would uh, would probably make that wake more, impinge on the, the rear of the car more, and therefore it wouldn't be good. But widening the track actually would do the opposite because you're getting the, the wheels out of the way. Uh, we reduced the, the width of the cars from, I think, 2.3 meters to, to no sorry from two meters to 1.8 meters some years ago and that had quite a significant effect on uh, reduction of aerodynamics okay there's your question answered and this one comes from da davin robert sturdivant um he wants to know is how often if ever do you see design elements of the cars that you've designed in the past on cars today do you ever because you on competitors' cars on yeah. Formula One car, uh, reasonably often. Uh, it, it's always a yeah, it's always something you you feel quite proud of when you see someone else uh, copying ideas that you've originated. Um, yeah, you know, going right back to uh, uh, our sort of Tolman Batmobile of 1983 onwards. Um, to you mentioned uh, Flavio Briatore a couple of minutes ago, and. Um, Something else we've heard that is, is that he's going to make a return to the Formula One paddock. H how do you personally feel about the prospect of that? Well, I, I think this is an idea that Bernie has had that he um, mentioned to the team principals on Sunday in Hungary. Uh, and I think he... I, I don't know all the details of it yet, but I understand that the idea is he wants someone like Flavio to look at what's wrong with Formula One. Um, now Flavio's an interesting guy. So he's a he's a really good lateral thinker, uh, and you know he he does have ideas that other people don't have. But I still go back to what I said earlier that it's not actually the sport that needs to improve per se. Now I'd never say it doesn't need to improve 
you know, in, in some ways. But the main thing at the moment is we need to promote it. So if someone's coming in to promote the sport, that's fine. If they're coming in to meddle with it, I don't think that's what we need at the moment. Agreed. Um, here's one from Santiago Upegui. It comes easy, from all that's round. easy for you to say. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, you know. Um, he's interested in the balance between the development race this year and a new car for next year, which is, I mean, is, is a challenge for every team, however wealthy they are, isn't it? What it, it is, and, and it's always the problem that all of us, uh, technical directors or whatever, face at this time of the year. It's a very, very difficult one to, to get right. Lots of things come into it, um, but probably the most important is your, your position in the championship. You know, if you are runaway leaders, you probably have an easier time. Certainly if you're, you, you're a sort of no-hoper at the back, you have an easier time. You don't have to develop. But anywhere where there's a big gap in the points, uh, you, you can put the emphasis more onto next year. Uh, the position Williams are in are quite difficult. The, the difference between third and sixth in the championship at the end of this year could be a couple of good races, you know, it, it really is that close. So it's a difficult thing for us to do. And by top team standards, we're a relatively small team. But there's some interesting things that I think have happened recently that have changed the, the, um, the sort of landscape of this, this problem. And that is that we now have aerodynamic testing restrictions. We are not allowed to just run our wind tunnels 24-7. Now when we were, I think the big teams who maybe had 100, 120 aerodynamicists were able to generate huge amounts of ideas, test them in the wind tunnel, get them on the car. We have a lot less than that, um, generating the ideas, but no matter whether you have 120 or whether you have 60, you've got to put all the ideas through this sort of bottleneck of the wind tunnel restrictions that are imposed on us. And I think that means that, you know, there's a lot less opportunity to do that development for the latter part of the season and a lot more incentive to use that time to get on with next year's car. So I think we're going to see a lot more of the status quo maintained through the second half of the season compared to the first than probably we've seen in, in previous years. It's a good cost-cutting measure there, isn't it? The uh, absolutely. You know, it's that, that that really is the seed from which everything comes from. So it's not just the cost of your, your guys and your wind tunnel and everything, it's the cost of the parts that you then make. So, you know, if you come up with a new front wing and they're not cheap items and you throw away all the old ones, that's a very direct cost. Okay, um, Pat, this one comes from Phil Ward. Um, he wants to know what your view of low-profile tyres is, that we saw them in a test session at Silverstone. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I, c I quite favour them. I, I think, you know, our, our tyres in Formula One uh, look very old-fashioned, don't they? Uh, and I think, you know, we should keep up that sort of appearance uh, in line with the, the more modern thinking. Um, they are going to be an enormous headache when they do come along. Uh, we get away with murder with our high-profile tyres at the moment. We have um, suspension geometry, for example, that you, you just 
you would never do if you really had to look after the tyre. And we rely on the flexibility of the tyre to take uh, some of the, 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 the bad parts out of it. So uh, a lot more work for all of us. Um, totally new thinking about the aerodynamics because the, the rotating exposed tyre is a key element in the, the aerodynamics of, a, of an open wheel car. Uh, so yeah, I favour it, but I don't underestimate the enormous amount of work that it will take. And I guess that means that if it's going to be made part of the rules, you need a lot of notice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the current tyre contract uh, expires at the end of 2016. So I think there's a reasonable chance that, that the high-profile, uh, low-profile tyres might come in for 2017, which is, which is fine. But we've already said to the FIA, if that is the case, we need wind tunnel tyres available beginning of 2015 because you know, that's how long we'll have to start thinking about it. Um, here's a weird one. It comes from Bill Sullivan in Nashville, Tennessee. He wants to know, Pat, you don't have to answer it. <laughs> Which would be more valuable to the Williams team in 2015? Would it be Fernando Alonso with a retainer paid by Santander? Or would it be about 25 million euros in cash? I'll be happy to, to answer that. Uh, I'll answer it at the end of 2015. <laughs> um, interesting question. So uh, a, a free Fernando or, or 25 million? Um, you know, I, I think a lot of Fernando, but I said earlier that, you know, the, the team is building. Uh, are we ready for, for Fernando at this stage? Have we already got the next Fernando? Uh, I'm not sure. 25 million sounds pretty attractive. Can we have pounds instead of euros? <laughs> well, I mean, the more points you get, the more pounds you're going to get, aren't you? So I guess uh, it's, yeah, okay. Anyway, good, good answer. Should have been a diplomat, Pat. Um, Bob Gagan wants to know, quite a s very simple question this, are you having fun? Because he reckons you might be having come back built the team up to be what looks like a great team again. Are you enjoying it? Absolutely. Uh, really, uh, you know, Williams is a fabulous place to work. It, it, it's, a, it's a sort of family team. It's, it's, it's strange, you know, because we're, we're the only team that's a publicly listed company, and yet it's a totally family team. It's a great place to work. I work with great people, and, uh, yeah, I, I'm enjoying myself more than I, I have done for many, many years. It's, it's Sorry, go on. I was only going to say, I remember at one point, Pat, you, you, were, you were sort of in two minds about whether you could ever go back on the road full-time or not. And, but yeah, you, that, you have, that, and it's that, obviously that's right, suiting you, know, you very well. Uh, a little while ago, I had a life plan, but um, yeah, it didn't last long. <laughs> but no, I'm very pleased to... Yeah, it's difficult to, to do every race, and, and particularly where we are at Williams, that's not something I intend to do. Um, really, you know, we, it's back at the factory where we've got to concentrate on the performance is the more important bit. But, you know, racing is the end that everything else is a means to, so you can't lose sight of it. Uh, and I think got quite a nice compromise at the moment. I sort of go to one race in three or something, and that way you, you, you keep in touch, but you're still back at the factory doing what needs to be done there. Do you think you guys can ever really walk away from it, though? I mean, I'm, think, I'm thinking of Ross Braun. Uh, uh, you know, do you, I know you don't know the answer to this, but, but do you think he'll come back? I mean, can you ever really get it out of your system? 
I think you can probably only get it out of your system if you find a replacement. Um, and the trouble is, a lot of people are in Formula One. Ross actually isn't one of them, but a lot of people in Formula One are very single-minded. And it tends to take over your life, you know, at the expense of your hobbies and your friends and, unfortunately, your family as well sometimes. Um, Ross, you know, has his passion for fishing. Uh, I think maybe Adrian's finding his passion for sailing or something like that, as Patrick Head does indeed. So I think if you've got something to replace it, yes, you can walk away from it. You can maybe crawl slightly in one direction. Um, but yeah, it's difficult when you, you, you know, you've lived so many years absolutely, you know, in, the, in, in this almost false world of Formula One. It's, I think it must be very difficult to turn it off. Patrick, I mean, he, I, he, Patrick did it sort of gradually, didn't he? Um, but I must say, the last time I saw him, um, um, a few months ago, he really does seem to have... I mean, he's obviously oh, you, still you keeps an see, eye on it. Obviously, you don't he see does. the emails he sends me every week. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm past all that. Yeah. No, I, I, I had lunch with Patrick uh, last week, actually, yeah. and uh, no, we we keep in touch a lot, and uh, he he still gives me very sage advice. Um, I, I, I found the I found the question we all like, and um, just to give you just to give you a clue of the tone of the question, Pat, it comes from Bascule the Rascule. Um, yeah, a motorsport appeals to all sorts of people, after all. Um, <laughs> the question is, do you fancy a new job? Yours, Marco Mattiacci. <laughs> <laughs> Who's Marco Mattiacci? Oh yes. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. I, I'm a bit old to learn Italian now, aren't I? <laughs> Ah, okay. Mm. We've got that. Uh, we've got that recorded, Pat. <laughs> there isn't a question from Ed Foster asking whether Pat knows how to set up a pedal, though, is there? <laughs> I'd be really surprised if there isn't. Bit late with a few days to go. I don't. I shouldn't think. But you've never designed a pedal, Pat. I don't think I have. But you're no, going to be on one next. I could do. Yeah. Yes, and you'll probably be on one next week. I expect. <laughs> anyway, okay. Um, there's a question here, Pat, about. Um, the combination of the driver and the car, and I'll try not to make this question too long, it comes from Jens P, but it is quite interesting. Um, when we think, when, when we see what, when we see the problems Kimi Raikkonen appears to have with this year's Ferrari compared to Alonso, um, Jens P is saying, has the car at all times got to be exactly what the driver wants, or, do, or does the, should and does the team get the driver to adapt to the car? I'm simplifying the question. Are you sure it's from Jens P and not Jenson? <laughs> um, well, we'll, perhaps we'll come to that in a minute. It's a, it's a little bit of both. Um, it, it's funny, you know, with, with all the sort of mathematics and science that we, we apply to the design of the cars, we still have this big question of, how it actually interacts with the driver. And it's one of the reasons why we're, we're putting so much effort into to simulators now. And the big thing with simulators is not the, the model of you know how they move around or, or what have you. Um, one of the big things, because I have to say tire models are still a, a, a vital part of it, but, but one of the big things is um, the model of the the sort of vestibular system of the driver in other words the feedback he's getting and that's an area where all of us are working a lot because if we could understand that we could answer this question 
And the truth is we can't answer this question precisely. So the fact is we do a little bit of both. We know that for a car to be fast it has to be a little bit unstable and you know it's very similar to a fighter aircraft as, as opposed to an A380. You know an A380 you want it trundling along, take your hands off and it will keep flying. If you want to fly a fighter aircraft in combat, you need something that is very, very responsive. And you, you take it to the limit of stability. And in fact, these days, you take it beyond the limit of stability, and then you use computer systems to stabilize it. But it's a little bit the same with the racing car. We want it on the edge of stability. Now, we're not allowed to use any systems to stabilize it. We're not allowed to sort of augment the sta stability in any way. So we have to acknowledge that our control system in it is a human being. Some human beings have better bandwidth of their control system than, than others. Uh, and we have to tailor to what that driver needs. So it's a little, as I said, it's a little bit of both. We want the car in a particular manner, but we accept that the driver can't necessarily drive it in that manner. So we back off a little bit from the, the edge of that particular envelope. It's a, it's a, to me, it's a hell of an in interesting area, I must say. It is, and it's one that we're gaining more and more uh, expertise in. And, of course, it's something that will feed back to road cars. You know, what, what makes a road car nice to drive as well? Um, so it's a, it is. It's a very interesting area. I feel an article coming on when you've got a spare few moments. <laughs> not that I'm the editor, but I can say it because he's not here. Um, let's do a flying lap of the table then because we're nearly, we're nearly out of time. Um, Nigel? Give us a penetrating question or comment. Oh, we should give me a little more warning, Rob. I'm just trying <laughs> okay, to think we'll of some, something we haven't talked about this morning already. Well, we'll, we'll move on. We'll move uh, on to Simon. I'll come back to me. Yes. I, I, I wish you'd give me a little bit more warning okay. about that, Rob, because I, uh, I wasn't expecting. Okay, well, okay, well, okay, we'll come. Well, we'll, I'm we'll, answering we'll, them okay, off we'll the cuff. Come, That's fine. We'll come. Well, that's fine. We'll come back to me. Maybe Pat could ask us a question. Uh, <laughs> when you in a month's time when you start this this drama again the second half of the season um how frustrating is it i don't know what you'll be doing you on whether you're on a beach or in a jungle or but anyway you're bound to have some ideas aren't you pat but you can't do anything about it at what point can you do you mean during our, our shutdown I mean, period you're, yeah. you're not allowed to do stuff are you no you're not absolutely no i mean you're allowed to think <laughs> you know, there's nothing, nothing will ever stop you doing that. But you can't uh, communicate. And actually, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I was talking to some of my uh, um, adversaries, colleagues, whatever you like to call them, in, uh, in Hungary. Rivals. And uh, at rivals, yes. And we were all saying the fantastic thing about the shutdown is no email. Because, of course, we don't just get two weeks holiday a year. You know, we, we have other times when we can have long weekends or... Christmas off or whatever, but emails are relentless. So every day, if you're on holiday, if you're away, you know you have to spend some time in the evening catching up with your emails uh, and uh, you know processing what needs to be done, answering questions back at base or whatever. The fantastic thing about the summer shutdown is we're not allowed to send any emails. We're not allowed to receive any emails. And do you know that's the most relaxing thing in the world? It really is. Uh, so. Yeah, you do think, of course you think, but you don't do much other than that. But how on earth is that policed? How, 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 how is it policed that I don't send you an email and you don't send one to me? Well, it's an interesting question because, of course, 
until this year, the shutdown has been a photo police thing. And as a photo police thing, it was actually an agreement. Um, there were never any penalties associated with it. It's quite interesting that we all signed this agreement that we do uh, this summer shutdown. But at no point were there any consequences for, for not doing it, as indeed were the aerodynamic testing restrictions until recently. But it was one of those nice times when you, you saw that, you know, the teams did abide by it. I think with the, the aerodynamic testing restrictions, I think they abide by it 100%. I think with the, um, with the shutdown, I think, you know, it's very difficult to control some of your subcontractors. And I think there were some breaches in the past, but I don't think they were particularly serious. Interestingly now, it's an FIA rule. So it's in the sporting regulations. So there are penalties in the sporting regulations. So if there are breaches, then there have to be the associated penalties. And I think it's very important that those are sporting penalties. You know, it's no good saying to someone, well, you, you, you can't do any work. If not, we'll fine you $500,000. Because you say, oh, okay, well, that's worth it. I'll do it. You know, so they have to be sporting penalties. So, you know, it has to be drop on the grid or something like that. Now, that all becomes really quite emotive then, doesn't it? And as you point out, it's quite difficult to, to prove it. I mean, yes, if you want to get into it, of course, you can follow trails of emails and phone calls and things like that, as we saw with the McLaren case. But uh, I think it's quite a test for Formula One this summer. It, um, I have actually remembered one of the things I was going to ask. If, if am, am I allowed? Good. Marvellous. Um, just as a general point, um, how much do this year's increasingly complex cars favour drivers who've got spare mental capacity. I mean, without wishing to... I mean, look at Canada, for example, when Mercedes came on the radio to both drivers to how to manage a rear brake issue, um, rear brake problem. The Nico did what he was told to do. Lewis tried to do something else to gain a bit of an advantage, which is great competitive spirit. One, one of them blows the rear brakes, the other one doesn't. I mean, how, I mean, those... I mean, we know that the greats have always been the ones that have been able to think and drive simultaneously. But as the cars become more complex, is that becoming more of a more of a you know, does it advantage some more than others? I, I don't think so particularly because they are so complex that really that work has to be done back in the pits. We have to find the solutions and then we have to advise the drivers what to do. Uh, the drivers then, you know, they change switches, they flick buttons, they, they change their driving style. So the, the intellectual work has to be done back at the pits, really. Uh, of course, there are drivers who will adapt better to those changing conditions. As you say, that's always been the case. Um, they're very, very complex power units. They're very complex cars. There's no doubt about it. And uh, in Australia, um, in fact, even in our, uh, one of our first race simulations in the Bahrain test, it really surprised me what the workload was on, on the pit wall. You know, it, there's an awful lot to do. We're, we're better at it now. We're more used to it. You know, we're more used to how we manage the systems. But when you get a, uh, a case like uh, Canada, when all of the Mercedes engine cars had this problem of, um, well, I won't go into what the problem was, but they had a problem that we needed to manage. Uh, yeah, it was, that was hard work again. Pat, I'm come up with my question Rob. Good, so good. well done Nigel, let's hear <laughs> it. Um, 
Something that seems to be a bit of a turn-off for a lot of fans when talking about why are the viewing figures dropping and so on is a lot of people have said to me what they, something they really hate is this driving by numbers thing of, of literally of the driver receiving constant instructions from his race engineer about what to do next and um, you know Nico's quicker into turn nine than you are and such, such, all this stuff. So, I mean, it's been proposed many times over the years that, that, you know, the radio contact between team and driver be banned. If it were to be banned in this era with these, with these um, power units as they are, how do you think that would pan out? Well, well firstly, I think it cannot be banned. Um, it's, a, it's a safety issue, and we will not run a car if the radios aren't working. Um, there are all sorts of things that we're seeing from the pits that we can help the driver with. Uh, okay, a sudden brake failure like Lewis had in Germany, of course you can't do anything, but punctures, brake problems, overheating brakes, things like that. You know, we, we rely on the radio as a primary safety thing, so absolutely, it, it just cannot happen. We can't put a driver at risk because we can't communicate with him. Is there too much... Instruction? I, I don't know really. I, I, I do. I find it interesting these days because it's a relatively new phenomenon where where the engineers are telling the drivers how to drive the cars. Um, I quite like it actually. <laughs> Maybe that's the frustrated racing driver in all of us. Um, uh, and I'm surprised there aren't more classic comments come back from the cockpit that's Kimmy's exclusive preserve isn't it yeah, <laughs> exactly uh, I, I didn't realise that, that fans were finding that uh, well, they, frustrating they, I think I mean somebody said to me the other day it kind of just sort of kind of reduce everybody's idea of mano a mano you know it's yeah. supposed to be drivers acting on instincts and no it, it is a team sport you know we, we sometimes lose sight of that it is a team sport uh, so you know the the guys in the pit stop, for example. You know we train and train and train to get those sort of sub three second pit stops. We're training now to get our sub two second pit stops. Um, yeah, it's a team sport. That's what it's all about. I think it's just a little bit used to be a little bit wearing sometimes when you'd hear an engineer come on and a race engineer come on say you need to push now insert name here for example Giancarlo. Um, <laughs> yes, but, that's right. Uh, but uh, <laughs> you say well surely. No, uh, but, that, but that's nothing new. You see now, you know I, I can go back to working with Michael in the nineties, and always you know I was doing in those days you, the race engineer did the strategy, I did the strategy. Uh, and I would understand exactly when he had to push and exactly when he should, could back off and look after stuff. And, you know, that's nothing new, I don't think. Um, can I please end on an aerodynamic question? Reason being that um, to have you here for an hour is um, a bit special, especially for our, for our readers. Um, and Yuri uh, has a question which, which um, in, in brief, to praise you a bit, is that he's heard that if you put a, uh, a funnel or a big shovel in uh, in front of the in front of the car it doesn't drive more air under the car so he says how do raised high noses on formula car formula 1 cars actually work well it's an hours podcast you said He's so going to come back. Can, can, can we extend it to a, a day uh, and I could probably answer that well, now I will try and answer it simply. Um, it, it's, it, it, firstly, it's not quite true that if you 
what did he call it? A shovel or a funnel. Uh, it doesn't put more, more air under. There is, gosh, now I've got to try and explain this without getting too technical. Aerodynamics on the Formula One car is all about control of vortices. Now, vortices are spinning columns of air that come off surfaces on a, on a, on a car. And you might think that it's the air that's flowing over the car that's everything to do with aerodynamics. But in actual fact, it's the, it's the air that's flowing away from the car that's actually more important. And these, particularly these vortices and the turbulence that comes off, we're, we're very different to aircraft in, in that respect. Aircraft have vortices, they have uh, turbulent flow behind them, as, as I think people can see from contrails and things. But uh, we, we deal pretty well exclusively with the, this sort of turbulent flow. And the flow under the nose controls one of the most important vortices that comes off the front wing, which comes off 250 millimetres from the centre line. Sounds a very exact thing. It is a very exact thing. It's part of the rules, and that's why it would take a, a day or two to explain all of it. But... Um, it's the control of that that is probably the single most important vortex on the car. Now, next year, we've had a little tidy up of the, the rules for the nose. And it, it really seems like a tidy up because some of them were pretty ugly and we wanted to, you know, just uh, be a little bit more prescriptive. And it's interesting that it has actually fundamentally changed that. And, uh, you know, there's a lot more work to do to, to recover some of the performance. So um, I hope. Yuri, that that answered your question. It's a quite a difficult one to answer. Well, I, th I think it's a great. I think it's a great question because I think I think a lot of people do look at the high noses and they th a they don't like them and b they do think, well, how does this work? So, so I, anyway, I thought it's good good to end good to end on a difficult question. Why not? It's good, and uh, maybe you'll come back at the end of the year and tell us a bit more about it. Who knows? Anyway, thank you very much, Pat. Fantastic. My pleasure. Okay, that's all we have time for, everybody. Thanks a lot for joining us again. Uh, good luck, Ed, circumnavigating the northern tip of Scotland on a pedalo. I urge you to sponsor him because they're great charities, Parkinson's and Cancer Research. We'll see you next time, and uh, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you to Pat Simmons, to Nigel, and to Simon. That's it. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>